If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. With Uber Reserve, good things come to those who plan ahead. Family vacay? Reserve your ride as soon as you book your flights. To all the planners, now you can reserve your Uber ride up to 90 days in advance. See Uber app for details. This episode is brought to you by Fiat. A remix just hits different. The 2024 Fiat 500e is no exception. Cruise city streets in style with an all-electric ride that's fully equipped with an available premium JBL audio system. Explore the all-new 2024 Fiat 500e at fiat.com. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SBA, used under license by FCA US LLC. Awaken your senses with a curiously refreshing Hendrix Cucumber Lemonade. Curious how? Cue the aroma. Marvelous. Cue the taste. Magnificent. Cue the cucumber. That's the refreshing secret. Hendrix is uncommonly crafted with cucumbers, roses, artistry, and imagination. Other gins are ordinary, but Hendrix is refreshingly curious. Discover Hendrix Gin cocktail recipes at HendrixGin.com. Please drink the unusual responsibly. Hendrix Gin, 44% alcohol by volume. Bottled and imported by William Grant Sons, New York, New York. Copyright 2024. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Suleiman the Magnificent dominated the early 16th century, presiding over the vast Ottoman Empire and vying with the Holy Roman Empire to become master of the world. But behind the scenes, conniving favourites whispered in his ear, pulling the strings for their own benefit. Rhiannon Davis spoke to Christopher de Belague, who's the author of The Lion House, a new book on the Sultan, to discuss the dangerous early years of Suleiman's rule. So Christopher, why did you choose to write this book as eyewitness history? I didn't choose to write it as eye history. It sort of rather um, chose itself to be written as as eyewitness history. But the proposal I gave for this book to the Bodley Head was a very conventional um, history proposal. It started on the premise that the early years of Suleiman's time as sultan were marked by extraordinary cosmopolitanism in the Ottoman apparatus, um, the rise of people from literally nowhere, from a diversity of backgrounds to become extraordinarily powerful. Uh, and this seemed to me to be making a very powerful point about the way that Ottoman government was was operated and also the way that o- Ottoman society permitted that kind of that kind of fluidity and that kind of almost if if one could put it the meritocracy of the Ottoman state so my my point was a very sort of conventional point and the the proposal I wrote was designed to to put flesh on those bones what then happened was that during lockdown I found myself, to begin with, I found myself, like everyone else, um, locked in small rooms. And then I was unable to um, access a lot of the kind of... um, atmospherics that a historian usually uses. So, you know, meeting up with other people, discussing ideas, um, getting a more magisterial overview, browsing in the library, thinking, hmm, I might be able to cross-reference that, Um, looking forward into history and saying, well, I wonder how Suleiman is remembered now, how is he remembered after his death, all that kind of thing that that creates a kind of conventional um, historical overview to which we may attach the epithet magisterial. And that is something, um, I suppose, that to varying degrees we all aspire, that that word magisterial. I decided, or it was decided for me, that that word was completely inappropriate because I found myself accessing instead um, a lot of 
source materials, primary source materials. Uh, some of them I would um, send off for and they would be sent to me or I would um, find them quite by chance on the internet in a variety of languages. And uh, so my access to this period was was much more direct. And then uh, I suppose what happened, that idea of the historian as the, as the mediator or the intermediary between the reader and the history kind of fell away. And I found myself almost writing myself out of the story, myself as the historian, and ending up, um, I hope, with what is a very direct experience for the reader of being there in the room when Suleiman and Ibrahim are discussing things or when a decision is being taken. Um, suddenly, these little events that had so profound an impact on European history became themselves the main story, rather than me saying, well, this is how you should feel about the Ottomans, and this is the mistake that has been often made. And in the future, I want you to think in this way about the Ottomans and being, as I say, very magisterial and perhaps a little kind of priggish and annoying. Well, it's certainly a very gripping way of presenting the history. So focusing on Suleiman, how does he rise to become Sultan? Suleiman had a very easy rise to the Sultanate because his father Selim, um, Selim the Grim or Yavuz Selim as the Turks call him, which essentially means intransigent or or, um, or, or stern, had no compunction in killing. Uh, and so everyone else who could have become Sultan um, was dispatched out of the way. Um, there was a tradition that had become law under um uh, under Mehmet the Conqueror, uh, Suleiman's great-grandfather, by which uh, the Ottoman Sultan could could dispatch um, brothers and sons in order to ease uh, the passage to um, the uh, the Sultanate of, of a particular favoured son or brother. And this was indeed something that um, Suleiman benefited from. He came to power um, after his his father Selim had ruled um, for a very short period of time, but in the process had more than doubled um, the extent of, of Ottoman territory. And Ottoman the Ottomans had really they'd entered uh, Iran and dispatched uh, defeated the Iranians. They'd also um, captured Egypt and gained control of the Holy Land. So they, they went from being, under Selim, his father, they went from being a, a, large, uh, a large power with a very significant European presence to a very much larger power with a much more Eurasian identity. Uh, and he came to power unopposed. His father died very unexpectedly, possibly of the plague, and he came to power unopposed and his accession was greeted with enormous relief um, by the European powers, by Christendom as a whole, because uh, the Christian powers were in enormous terror of his father Selim and they just, they just thought that Suleiman uh, could only be an improvement. And before we come on to Suleiman's reign, I wanted to drill down further into his relationship with his father because the threat of violence hangs over them, doesn't it? I think it does. I think when you're looking at the different ways that dynasties at the time had to ensure stability of succession, the the Ottoman the Ottoman choice, which was to uh, essentially strip away anyone who might offer a threat um, in order to favour one person, um, made that extraordinarily kind of a, a very precarious position. But we get this strong sense from the chronicles of the time that on the few occasions that. Um, that the grown-up Suleiman uh, met his father Selim, it was a very precarious moment. One didn't quite know which way uh, which way the the meeting could go, because of course a sultan, as he approached his older age, was always very vulnerable to um, a son who might. Um, depose him and topple him uh, and kill him. Uh, and indeed, um, Selim had done uh, the very same thing to his own father, Bayezid. We're not entirely sure that he um, actually murdered him, but he certainly toppled him. And very shortly after, uh, Bayezid died um, ostensibly of natural causes, but there are strong suspicions that he was poisoned. So I think if you treat your um, your royal father that way, then you're going to fear your royal son. Equally, your royal son is is also going to fear uh, that your father might take against you, or, or indeed, out of some um, impulse to, to defend himself, uh, dispatch you. Suleiman's uh, advantage was that he was the only surviving son of Selim, and therefore, if he played his cards right, he was a shoe in to be to be sultan. So when he comes to power. 
as I said, he did so unopposed. When he started to have children of his own, the ramifications of that Ottoman policy uh, became uh, very, very much imprinted on his own behaviour and his own decision-making. And before we leave this father-son relationship, there's one episode that really stuck in my mind, which is the poisoned gown that Salim sends to his son. Why does he send him this gift and how does Suleiman avoid being killed by it? This we have from um, one of the uh, Venetian sources, and the Venetians were, they're absolutely indispensable to any writer of the Ottoman period uh, at this time, because the Venetians were, I'm sure we'll come on to this, were very, uh, were very absolutely dependent on Ottoman goodwill. And in order to uh, um, keep in the Ottoman good graces, they need to have the best possible intelligence about the Ottomans. So the, the Venetian ambassadors and, um, and other envoys would send um, write reports that were extraordinarily detailed. One of them contains the story of the poison gown. It seems it seems that um, Selim was uh, responsible for sending that to him. Others have suggested that um, perhaps um, another official did so. But it would um, it, it arrived at Manisa uh, or Magnesia, which is where um, Suleiman was uh, as a prince um, was learning the ropes uh, of administration um, with his mother Hafsa, who was a formidable woman. And this gown arrives, and uh, it's absolutely splendid. But uh, Hafsa says, just hold on, uh, don't put that on. We'll give it to an attendant first. And of course, the poor attendant um, dies, short, dies shortly thereafter. Uh, and uh, Suleiman is, is spared um, the fate uh, that in fact met um, uh, the attendant. So coming on now to Suleiman as Sultan, just how powerful is he? Uh, the idea of uh, the all-powerful as opposed to the puppet uh, in the hand of, of the courtiers is something that's absolutely fascinating to me. And in a way, this is the, the key conundrum at the heart of the book. It's, it's whether Suleiman is, um, as he is proclaimed and as his titles, long list of titles suggest, the master of the celestial conjunction, uh, the master of um, vast swathes of the world, the vice regent of God on earth, um, his his uh, his rule decreed by divine writ, or whether he's simply the puppet in the hands of very powerful courtiers. And I think that the the key relationships um, here, he inherits. Um, key pushers who are sort of senior officials, um, military and administrative officials from his father. And he's a young man. He's had a certain amount of experience, um, as I said, at at, uh, Manisa. Uh, But he's had no experience of running uh, an empire as fabulously complicated and rich and complex as the Ottoman Empire. Whereas these these people have, and one of them, Piri Pasha, who is quite an old man by the time he comes to power, he inherits as, as the Grand Vizier. And there are two others, Ferhat Pasha and Ahmed Pasha, who were important under his, under his father and think to themselves, well, we want to keep our positions and we, we want to be able to influence policy and influence the young Sultan. It doesn't take very long for Suleiman to find them a bit of a, um, a bit of a bind and to start divesting himself of their influence and their power. He does this in, in two ways. The first is by proving himself, and he proves himself as a military commander. And he proves himself as a figurehead um, in several um, campaigns, one which, in which the Ottomans take Belgrade and the other in which they take the island of Rhodes. But the main way he does so is simply through palace politics. He comes to power with a young companion, almost exactly the same age, who is called Ibrahim Pasha. He wasn't Pasha then. He was just called Ibrahim. He w- Ibrahim was born Piero on the coast of Albania, of what is now Albania. He was a Venetian citizen. His father was was a trader in skins and pelts. And so far as we know, he was playing on a beach one day when some pirates arrived and they lifted him up uh, along with various other people that they found. They scooped them up into captivity and took them off to Anatolia. And he, it was Ibrahim's good luck to find himself um, purchased by an elderly widow. She brought him on. She taught him lots of um, 
things like languages and how to uh, conduct himself and um, uh, musical instruments and literature and various other accomplishments that um, were suitable for a young man um, of ambition. He came into um, the sphere and circle of the crown prince, as Suleiman then was. They became extremely close. The Venetian ambassadors uh, suggest that they were lovers. At any rate, they were extremely close and had a very intense relationship. So when Suleiman arrives on the throne, he comes to Istanbul to take up the powers that were left to him by his father and the existing pushers are all waiting for him and rubbing their hands together and saying, well, there's a young chap here, we're going to control him. It's not one man who arrives, it's two. And they're thinking to themselves, well, who is this Ibrahim? Come out of nowhere, he's just a slave. And why is our new lord so dependent on him? And Ibrahim is a very, very interesting historical figure because he came from nowhere but is highly intelligent, very charming, very accomplished in so many ways. And Suleiman, I think, lacks confidence. He lacks self-confidence. He feels isolated, surrounded by his father's men in an alien environment. And so he leans ever more heavily on Ibrahim. And in 1523, takes the unprecedented step of promoting Ibrahim to become Grand Vizier, the first Grand Vizier of the Ottoman Empire, who has in no way proven himself, either on the battlefield or indeed in the corridors of administration. And do we know whether Ibrahim was responsible for his huge promotion, or was this all purely the thinking of Suleiman himself? We don't know. Um, we know a fair amount about what happens behind closed doors, because the Venetians are, are very good at ferreting out this information. We don't know who was the originator of this idea, but what we do know is that one day uh, Suleiman sat down with Piri Pasha, who was the Grand Vizier, the elderly Grand Vizier, and said musingly, I'm thinking of um, of uh, promoting a, a slave to who I'm very attached to a high position. I wonder what position he should be he should be promoted to. And Piri Pasha says, gets the gets the hint and says, well, it is obviously my position that should be open to this slave to whom you are so attached and do please send me into retirement. And this is a sort of, um, this is an object lesson in how to leave office in the Ottoman period, in any period, now, then, at any time. You, you take the hint and you take the money and you escape with your neck. He's very gracious in how he leaves, isn't he? <laughs> yes. Ibrahim holds on to power, doesn't he? And he really starts to almost rival the sultan. Does he covet more than what he has? That's a that's a very um, central question uh, to the book, and we have tantalising hints of of how this re relationship evolves. So there's a there's a lovely story um, which illustrates this this, um, this this dynamic, which involves Mustafa, uh, the son of Suleiman, his eldest son, by his consort Maidevran, and Mustafa gets invited for an intimate lunch one day at the palace, and Ibrahim is there, and so is Suleiman. And he enters the, um, the, the hall where they're having lunch, uh, where they are to have lunch. And they're all eating um, using wooden spoons because that was the tradition at the time. Um, the sultan pays a great deal of deference to Ibrahim and offers him her wooden spoon and says, um, please start eating. But no one pays any attention to, uh, to Mustafa. And they suddenly realize that Mustafa hasn't even started eating. So Ibrahim very graciously says, please take up your spoon and start eating. And uh, Mustafa replies in a way that um, he gets very angry uh, that Ibrahim has been, uh, has been um, honored in this way before him. Uh, and he says, you know, you call, you call yourself uh, my slave, um, but in fact, uh, you, you eat at my father's table every day and you get the wooden spoon before I do. Ibrahim's very clever. He knows how to mollify the angry young man. Um, and so he sends him various presents and they establish a relationship of trust because he realizes that uh, that Mustafa could end up sultan one day and that he may rely on his, his goodwill. So essentially, uh, Ibrahim is negotiating and navigating his way through the, the family politics. It's not simply uh, Suleiman, it's also, uh, it's also his family. As things go on, as Ibrahim becomes more and more well-known across Europe, as he takes control of foreign policy 
in particular the diplomacy that happens at the time. The Venetians adore him because he speaks Italian. He was a Venetian citizen. Uh, he loves their presence. He He's a big fan of any Venetian bling he gets. And so they have an inside track to Ibrahim. This, all of this gives Ibrahim a great influence. And towards the end of um, the Lion House, when Ibrahim is really at his pomp, uh, we have some wonderful um, verbatim descriptions of, of conversations that he has with Habsburg ambassadors, in which he is in which he is boasting about the power he has over the Sultan. Basically, says, "If I tell the Sultan to do something, he does it, and if he wants to do something, and I want to do something else, inevitably, it is the thing that I want done that will be done. So, don't think that he's holding the power. I'm the one uh, with with the real power." So this is the evolving relationship between Ibrahim and, and uh, Suleiman during the book. It starts off as one with Suleiman appointing him, then probably goes through a period of, of equality. And then towards the end, you get the, the very kind of disagreeable sense that Ibrahim is kind of usurping power and he's usurping his master's position. And that creates uh, an interesting tension for, for me as a writer. Certainly. And I think let's save Ibrahim's ultimate fate for the end of the podcast. Uh, but thinking now about the Ottoman Empire's relationship with Christendom, when Suleiman becomes sultan, you mentioned that the European rulers were happy that his father had died and this new ruler seemed much more peaceable, much more amenable. Did that remain the case? It did not, because within a very short period of time, Suleiman had marched to Belgrade, which was deep into central southern Europe, and taken Belgrade. He had taken the island of Rhodes from the Knights Hospitaller, who were um, who had been in control of that island for, for many centuries. And he revealed himself to be um, just as bellicose and just as belligerent and just as ambitious as his father, if not quite as gratuitously cruel. And there is a strong sense with Suleiman of someone of someone with a heart, someone with a sense of compassion, and something is is restraining him from that excess of bloodshed and that excess of cruelty that many of the other princes at that time indulged in, and his father certainly did. It's important when you're discussing the rivalry between the Ottomans and the Habsburgs to emphasize that their, their interests did not map onto each other entirely. These are two world empires, and so they have interests elsewhere. Uh, the Habsburgs, are obviously, they, their, their possessions in Europe run from the Baltic to the Atlantic, and they're, um, they're expanding busily in the Americas. Uh, and I think there's there's only one mention in, in the book to the Americas, and that is that um, Charles is paying for his campaigns using American gold. Uh, and I think that's enough just to give the reader a sense of this much vaster entity, um, of this much vaster world in which Charles V of the Habsburgs is operating. Suleiman is the same. His interests run from uh, the Crimea all the way to North Africa, but then they also run much further east. And so there's a huge and increasing presence into northern Persia and then down into Mesopotamia towards Basra. The, 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 the Turks at the time are extremely interested in developing a, an empire that will um, take them along the Persian Gulf into the Indian Ocean and to, and to set up a permanent presence in India itself. So these are two world empires, but where they overlap is, on, is at the place where the two arcs the Baltic to the Atlantic and the Crimea to North Africa, where those two arcs meet is a place where they can fight and where they are almost destined to fight because these are two men who have world ambitions. Charles V is crowned as his, his initial title is, is uh, King of the Romans at Aachen in 1520. And that's the same year that Suleiman uh, becomes Sultan and Erasmus of Rotterdam it's not the only person to see in this coincidence a sign of things to come, what he called a uh, uh, almost a, a, a fraternal twinning of opposites, um, this kind of inevitable confrontation between these two men with world 
ambitions. Certainly, Charles believes that it is his destiny to rule the world. Suleiman has very similar beliefs, and inevitably they're going to they're going to run up against each other. They're also bolstered, if I might also add, uh, with a sense of destiny and a sense of history. Uh, Charles is very much aware of the Crusades. He's very much aware of which of his ancestors fought during the Crusades, and he would like to perpetuate that tradition to the to the very sacred end, in his view, of the retaking of Constantinople. So Constantinople, the fall of Constantinople in 1453, taking of that by the Ottomans was an enormous blow to Christendom's sense of um, uh, sense of security, um, sense of superiority. And uh, Charles, I think, um, has a has a profound fantasy that he will take Constantinople back. For Suleiman, a holy war, to increase the domain of Islam is also a divine imperative. And the Christians and the Muslims are, at a state level, very profound um, adversaries, adversaries, even if, um, at a societal level, and even in the corridors of power, the, 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 the situation is much less clear-cut and, and much more complicated. Still to come on the History Extra podcast... This is the master of the celestial conjunction. This is the lord of half the world. And he has to get permission from his grand vizier in order to make a simple administrative change. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of, and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So looking back then, how do the divisions in Christendom impact the viability of Suleiman taking Western Europe? These divisions, as as we know, are extraordinarily vivid at the time because the backdrop to a lot of what is happening now is is uh, the the Lutheran reforms or heresy, as as um, as the Catholics um, and certainly Charles V would believe, and that creates opportunities for the Ottomans. The Ottomans obs- observe what is happening in in Christendom and these splits that are appearing. Luther begins by, in the way that many reformists did at the time, by regarding the Turks as, um, at least on a rhetorical level, as preferable to the Papists and and as preferable to to the Catholics when. Suleiman reaches the walls of Vienna, which is really uncomfortably close for uh, the German friar. 
then he starts to kind of um, row back from that position and to suggest that it may indeed be um, a religious duty to fight the Turks. But he's always, Luther always used the Turks in a kind of um, semi-metaphorical sense, as if to say, uh, we already have something far worse than the Turks, and that is is the Pope. And uh, and you find that in 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 Protestant and reformist uh, discourse um, at the time everywhere. Major, that is the major division. And later on in Suleiman's life, that uh, th- that appreciation that the Ottomans have for the divisions in Christendom, they start to play on that um, very skillfully. Now, it's important also to to recognise that while the Reformation is taking place in 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 the Christian lands with enormous kind of results, something analogous is happening in the Islamic lands, and that is the uh, the hardening of divisions between. Sunnis and Shias. And Selim played a very important part in this, Suleiman's father, because he, as I explained, he went to Iran and he smashed the Iranian Shah. Now, the Shah had raised the standard and and declared Iran a Shia state and um, was sending agents and missionaries in across Anatolia um, to such an extent that members of the Ottoman royal house were said to be secret Shias. And this required a response um, that Selim, he made this response with uh, by defeating them in battle, but that wasn't enough because um, this heresy continued to spread, it continued to threaten the Ottoman the Ottoman state. And so what had been a much, much less codified Islam with the interpenetration of Shia and Sunni ideas, um, often in the same areas, in the same, even in the same worshipper, in the same people, um, now required a, a response that could be summarized as you're either with us or against us. And so during Suleiman's reign, we have um, the, 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 the Sunni um, tenets uh, become the orthodox tenets and uh, measures are taken um, to codify and to standardize um, worship, um, to standardize mosque building, and to keep a much closer eye on anyone who might have um, Shia tendencies. And circling back to Suleiman and the Habsburgs, why does Venice choose to play both sides? Venice's position is fascinating. It's It's really why um, Venice is so important in the book because of its insecurity. It's it's deeply insecure. Uh, it relies on the Ottomans. The Ottomans c- came to the to the um, Mediterranean, made it an Ottoman lake, and this is where the Ven- the Venetians are utterly reliant. Um, their ships need to go from uh, place to place, um, bringing goods. Um, to and from Venice, but also bringing goods that will end up elsewhere in Europe. And in order to do that, they need a certain, they need Ottoman goodwill and they need the Ottomans' permission. At the same time, the Venetians are a Catholic nation. They owe nominal allegiance uh, to the Pope, and uh, they have to um, they have to somehow remain Catholic and remain friends of the Ottomans. And they do this by suggesting to the um, rest of Christendom um, that they could perhaps moderate um, Ottoman aggressive designs, that they can provide intelligence about the Ottomans, all the usual ways that small states stuck, um, caught in between big states, all the, the, the connivances that they use in order to survive. So on the one hand, the Habsburgs are very angry with the Venetians, um, for being so close to Suleiman on the other on the other Suleiman is he has suspicions of his own that the Venetians are not true allies and they're not proper friends and you can't really trust them this allowed me to introduce um to readers one of the more one of the most remarkable characters in in 16th century history who is the son of the Venetian doge the Venetian doge being Andre Gritti and his son Alvise Gritti who was denied any chance of rising up uh, the Venetian hierarchy because he was born out of wedlock. The Ottomans have no such scruples. They say, come over and, um, uh, and, uh, uh, and make your fortune in Constantinople, in Istanbul. And Ibrahim in particular latches on to Alvise as a kind of, he's a slightly older figure. He's, he's, he's more experienced. He understands the ways of the world. He's his foreign policy advisor. He's fantastically rich. He is also, it's, it's like having the doge sort of in Constantinople because you've got the doge's son and that's sort of almost as good. Uh, 
And so he is kind of the embodiment of this double game. Because on the one hand, he's telling the Sultan, I am your devoted servant. On the other hand, he's telling his father, the the Doge, I am your devoted servant. And for several years, he can do that. He can plough that particular furrow and become extremely rich. He's supplying grain to, to Venice. He's supplying thoroughbred horses to northern Italy. He's supplying tin to the Sultan. He provides a lot of the gems and other precious metals that go to um, for the big upgrade that the uh, Sultan commissions for his own palaces. Uh, he's, a, he's, he's an extraordinarily um, multifaceted person. His own house in Istanbul is a kind of magnet for all kinds of things free thinkers and different sorts of people um, coming in and out of his house. He's a a remarkable late Renaissance figure. It seems perhaps that he's most devoted to himself in terms of furthering his self-interest. I think if you were to to find something that united the characters who've, who form the kind of the, the central core of this book, uh, and there's Barbarossa the pirate, and there's, of course, Hudan Sultan, who is the, the Sultan's Russian consort or Ruthenian, Ukrainian consort, one would have to say that they're all most devoted to themselves. And this is because the environment in which they live is extremely threatening, but also full of opportunity. Uh, if you are bold, literally the sky is the limit. There is very little in the way, other than um, religious law, um, there is very little to stop you achieving what you want to achieve because you're not really trammeled in the way that uh, we in our modern polities are. Um, there's nothing really tying you down. And so I would say that Alvise is, is animated by um, a profound ambition. Uh, he thinks... Um, you know he's been he's been denied office in Venice, but he's going to be bigger than Venice. Ibrahim is going to be bigger than the Sultan. Hurem Sultan, uh, this extraordinary woman who um, enters the the harem, she's a slave. She attracts the Sultan's attention. She's got many accomplishments. She is not um, removed from the Sultan's presence after giving birth to her first male child, which is what usually happens. The consort. When she produces a male child, then goes off with the prince and raises him um, in the expectation that one day he will be one contender for the throne of the Ottomans. But this isn't the case with Hurem. He falls genuinely in love with her. She falls genuinely in love with him. But also, uh, she realizes that, that the only way to to preserve her position is to keep as close as possible to the sultan. And she ends up marrying him and moving in to the new palace, um, which the first um, the first consort of a sultan to do so, and she uh, and she has many children by him. And so we've heard about the meteoric rise of these these favourites. Before we come on to their fall, I wanted to go back to his rivalry with Charles and the Habsburgs. How does this play out on the field? What are the key offensives? So Charles is a uh, is part of a double act. His his sidekick is, is his younger brother, Ferdinand, who is um, king of the Romans. And he uh, operates um, in, in Central Europe. Uh, one of his bases is Prague, but he also appears in, in, in Vienna. The Habsburgs are constantly on the move because they have so many, um, so many domains. Charles V and Ferdinand um, have sort of identical interests, but not quite identical because Ferdinand has is more constrained in terms of the territory that he controls. Ferdinand is very interested in in Hungary. And Hungary is really the 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 the, the setting. It's certainly in the first half of the book and the first, the early years of Suleiman's reign, um, there are several offensives into Hungary by the Ottomans. The first one uh, results in the defeat of the Hungarian um, King Louis um, in 1526 at the famous Battle of Mohach, which is really the annihilation of the Hungarian uh, the Hungarian nobility. But Suleiman doesn't install a regime that is to his liking, and he has to go back again, and he has to reinvade Hungary. And this time, he installs a vassal called Janos Zapolia, who used to be who used to be the uh, the governor of Transylvania as a king of Hungary. Ferdinand, further north, regards himself as the rightful king of Hungary. And so that tussle goes on. Suleiman doesn't really regard Ferdinand as his equal. 
His main adversary is Charles V, the, the older brother. Um, Charles V, he wasn't even elected in a, in a sort of clean way to the office of Holy Roman Empire. He, he, he bribed the electors um, using fantastic sums of money. Where's the legitimacy in that? And then he calls himself Prince of Jerusalem, which is clearly an Ottoman possession. I mean, that's, that's that kind of presumption um, Suleiman cannot abide. So there's a, I think there's a strong personal animus between the two. Certainly when um, Charles was growing up, uh, he used to dress his younger brother Ferdinand up as a as a Turk, and and they'd um, they'd play at the Crusades. Um, so it it runs deep um, this this enmity. After Mohach uh, in 1526, and then the return uh, three years later of the Turks to consolidate their rule in Hungary. Um, the next time they return, it's to um, launch an attack on on Vienna, and they get to the walls of Vienna. Um, Vienna was um, a relatively small town um, in those days, but it was undeniably um, important. It was regarded as the gateway to Western Europe. And had Vienna fallen, um, it is possible that the Ottomans would have been emboldened to go even further into Western Europe. Uh, But Vienna did not fall. It was heroically defended. And what always happens with an Ottoman advance when you get far enough away from Istanbul we're talking a thousand miles or something like that. I mean, really a very, a very long supply train, massive logistical problems. You can only get to the walls of Vienna, for example, as summer is turning into autumn. And you get the frosts and all of that, the, the onset of winter inevitably favours the defenders. And in the end, the, the Ottomans are forced to withdraw. A further expedition by land also yields um, very little in the way of results. And it's at that stage, at the beginning of the 1530s, that the main setting for this rivalry changes. It changes from Hungary and North uh, and South Central Europe to the Mediterranean Sea or the White Sea, as the Ottomans call it. And so from then on, um, the story uh, in the Lion House becomes, um, in part, a story of the sea. And this is when Hayreddin becomes a key character, isn't it? So Hayreddin is the is I, I suppose the the fourth of the sort of main characters who circle um, Suleiman, and Hayreddin was uh, he's known as Barbarossa in the West. Um, which suggests he had a red beard. He didn't. His brother, Orich, had a red beard and was called Barbarossa. And when Orich was killed, Hyredin took over and everyone liked the name. So they said, we'll carry on calling them. We'll just call him Barbarossa. Um, his was much more Auburn. Um, he, was a, he was a remarkable uh, character um, from, the, from the Corsair or piracy tradition that was extremely prevalent in the Mediterranean at the time. He was born in Lesbos, migrated further west to Algiers and Tunis and to that sort of central and western part of the South Mediterranean. And there was a kind of ongoing battle, um, sea campaign against the Spanish, which of course is um, Charles V's, one of Charles V's homes. And also um, uh, the Italian coast. I mean, there were rich pickings in that sea. And I was um, very fortunate to, um, to to come across the eyewitness account of these campaigns by one of Hayreddin's sort of ch- lieutenants. I'm not sure how many of his seamates could read and write, but Said Murat could read and write, and he left us behind this um, this this wonderful account, this very very vivid account of um, of raids and battles. One of the most dramatic of which was, as you know. Um, the situation for Muslims and the Spanish peninsula was was very difficult after the reconquista of um, Ferdinand and Isabella, who were Charles V's uh, maternal grandparents. And the persecution of Muslims um, really um, upset Hayreddin. And so he went over and he brought somewhere between 50,000 and 70,000 Iberian Muslims across the sea to North Africa and settled them there. Uh, at the same time, he was capturing Christian slaves and using them to, to build defences. He was ransoming them. And in the end, um, he was um, at least partly of Turkish origin. Ibrahim uh, turned to the Sultan and said, this is, you know, our weakness is, is the sea. 
Um, we're very strong on land. We're not quite as good at, at, at doing things on the sea. Let's let's bring in Hayreddin and let's make him our the head of our navy. And so Hayreddin is is summoned to Istanbul. Uh, he's already uh, in an alliance. He's already has close relations with the Ottomans, but he's very still very independent. But in the end, he's brought on board and he becomes the top admiral, the head of the Ottoman navy, and goes on to score notable successes um, in the Mediterranean. So would you say it's fair to say then that although Charles and Suleiman were vying to be emperors of the world, neither of them really achieved this ambition? It's almost more of a stalemate in this period. Yes, I think there's a moment in 1534 when Alvi the son of the Venetian doge, who's whose star has fallen in Ottoman circles, um, partly because he's very, very ambitious, and partly because um, he makes an enemy in Hayreddin um, Barbarossa, the, the admiral. There's a, there's a moment in 1534 where he turns against the Turks, and he says to the Habsburg ambassador, to, to an Habsburg envoy, he says, Suleiman is away in the east, he's fighting the Persians. Hayreddin is miles away in North Africa. Constantinople is prone. Now is your chance. Come and take Constantinople and you will destroy the Ottoman Empire for good because it is, it is really the, the, the beating centre, the heart of the Ottoman Empire. I don't know whether that was a feasible option. It might have been a feasible option. Certainly what Alviza says was true. Constantinople was for a brief period very undefended and had Charles and Ferdinand gathered their forces and their fleets and made for Constantinople, who knows that they might have been able to take it. What would have happened then, that mastery of the world you, you refer to? I don't know. I, I, can, I can see a scenario under which Charles would have been unable to retain Constantinople uh, because Suleiman would have rushed back from Persia and taken it back, back off him. But that would have been one measure of victory in this contest for, for mastery of the world. Suleiman was heading in the other direction. He was very interested in India and very interested in the Persian Gulf. And I think it's possible to envisage a scenario in, in which the Ottomans became masters, if not of all of India, then certainly a, a great deal of India. They came up against the Portuguese in India, and there was a there was a decisive defeat, which then set back that that cause. But in answer to your question, neither of them won. Both maintained that sense of kind of wounded power. There is. So, there's something that needs to be eradicated here in terms of, you know, a major adversary. Um, but they continued to fight and to negotiate and to fight and to negotiate. And someone who certainly loses is Ibrahim. Can you tell us what happens? Ibrahim's story is one of hubris. You won't be surprised to hear. Uh, he gets too big for his boots. He is also an impediment to the rise of other people of talent in the Ottoman administration. He shows himself to be jealous and he makes enemies within the Ottoman administration. One of them is the quartermaster, uh, another fascinating individual called Iskender Celebi. And Iskender is almost as, as, as brilliant as Ibrahim. He's Turkish born, he's not a convert, and that gives him a certain, um, a certain uh, legitimacy that many people um, would not give to Ibrahim. In the eyes of many uh, Ottomans, Ibrahim is not really a Muslim. Uh, he's a fake Muslim. And there are disturbing stories of the contempt that he holds um, Islamic practice in, and certainly many of the beliefs that are fondly held by the people. The other black mark against um, Ibrahim from the Sultan's perspective is that he's uh, acquiring too much power and he's boasting about his power and he's boasting that he uh, can override the Sultan. The Sultan takes a liking to uh, a young man of great potential called Rustem, who is his stable master. And Ibrahim discovers that um, the Sultan has a favourite and he just has Rustem um, posted to the far end of the empire. And Rustem complains about this to the Sultan and says, um, 
you know, can't you do something about this? And all the Sultan can do is say, is when I next see Ibrahim, who knows when that will be because Ibrahim is campaigning uh, out in the East, I will have a word with him. This is the master of the celestial conjunction. This is the lord of half the world. And he has to get permission from his grand vizier in order to make a simple administrative change. There is a moment when Ibrahim turns um, Suleiman. There's a a calamitous um, campaign in in Persia, uh, in Iran and, and Mesopotamia that Ibrahim is partly responsible for, but which he manages to blame uh, Iskender Chelebi, his rival, for. And Suleiman falls into this trap and he has Iskender, um, he has him executed uh, in the marketplace in Baghdad. And that night Iskender comes to Suleiman and he wraps Suleiman's turban around the Sultan's swan-like neck and he pulls it tighter and tighter. And when the Sultan awakes from this nightmare, he makes a vow. And that vow is that his grand vizier, the man who forced him, who convinced him to kill a a man unjustly, um, will not live another year. And so after the return of the armies to Constantinople, Istanbul, it is Ramadan, and the Sultan invites Ibrahim, as he very often does, to come over from his own palace. I mean, Ibrahim is an extraordinarily large palace um, where he holds court, to come over from his palace and share iftar and then stay the night. And the next day, Ibrahim's body is discovered. He's uh, mounted a spirited defence against his assassins. And in the Ottoman court, these are invariably um, deaf mutes. Um, So they can't take, they can't tell anyone. Um, They can't um, carry secrets out of the court. But there are blood marks on his bedroom wall. And the body is taken across the Golden Horn and it's buried in an unmarked grave. And there is no announcement make, but of course the news spreads very quickly. And... This is the end of the Lion House, it's 1536, um, what we now know to be the end of the first, the first third of um, Suleiman's reign. And it is in a way his coming of age, it's the moment when he declares his independence and declares that he will not be dominated by anyone else for the rest of his reign. And Ibrahim disappears and being a slave, doesn't matter how rich he is, all of his wealth Everything he has reverts to the Sultan. And it is almost as if Ibrahim never existed. That was Christopher de Belague. His book, The Lion House, is published by Penguin and on sale now. You can read a version of this interview in the April issue of BBC History magazine, which is also on sale now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.